Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 6th of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, just wanted to kick off with uh, what appears to be confusing news over vaccination of children, or is it confusing? Uh, this was the BBC from a couple of days ago. Scientists not backing COVID jabs for 12 to 15 year olds. And uh, part of that report was that the UK's vaccine advisory body has refused to give the green light to vaccinating healthy children aged 12 to 15 years on health grounds alone. Uh, we're bringing this one. So this is the BBC from a day ago. COVID called for clarity on vaccines for children. Uh, on Friday, vaccine experts did not recommend jabs for healthy 12 to 15 year olds on health grounds alone. It then went on to say the government believes there's a strong case for offering the vaccine to healthy 12 to 15 year olds to reduce disruption in schools and keep infection rates down as winter approaches, a source has told the BBC. So the, the idea here, Mike, I think is that the public is being softened up, that there's a robust debate about whether children should be given vaccines or not. Uh, but I think behind the scenes, something rather different is emerging. Let's just add one more. This is Reuters here. Uh, this is uh, an up-to-date one. It says, UK minister, no decision yet on COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, for healthy children. So an era of confusion. We were supposed to be doing all the decisions to do with COVID based on science. And now apparently the ministers can just simply make up an arbitrary decision. Um, confusing or not? Well, uh, I, uh, what I think is going on is that the JCVI is pushing back a little bit on who's going to make this decision. Now, the government, of course, said, uh, and, and in fact, the MHRA, if you remember, uh, June, uh, June Rain said that uh, it was the JCBI's decision. Uh, well, here is uh, the chair of the JCBI, Professor Wai Shen Lim, uh, and he had this to say over the weekend, children aged 12 to 15 years old with underlying health conditions that put them at risk of severe COVID-19 should be offered the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, the range of underlying health conditions that apply has recently been expanded. But he said that taking a precautionary approach, approach, the margin of benefit is considered too small to support universal COVID-19 vaccination for this age group at this time. But here's the thing, the JCVI released a press release and this was uh, the key part of it. It is not within the JCVI's remit to consider the wider societal impacts of vaccination, including educational benefits the government may wish to seek further views on the wider societal and educational impacts from the chief medical officers of the UK's four nations. And that's indeed what the government has now done. Uh, they've written a letter from the UK health ministers to the UK chief medical officers. Uh, it was written on the third, was sent on the 3rd of September 2021. We're writing on behalf of the four nations of the UK following the recent JCVI discussions on 1st and 2nd September uh, regarding the COVID-19 vaccination of children and young people aged 12 to 15. Uh, the JCVI's advice goes on to suggest that the government may wish to take further advice, including on educational impacts from the chief medical officers of the four nations with representation from JCVI in these subsequent discussions. Uh, we will consider the advice from the chief medical officers of the four nations building on the JCVI's advice and making our decision. Given the importance of this issue, We'd be grateful if you could provide your advice as soon as possible. So that is the situation at the moment. It looks like the JCVI 
uh, is uh, saying not on medical grounds alone, but perhaps there might be other grounds for you to make this decision, uh, but really pushing it back towards the government uh, for a decision. So uh, welcome to the programme, David. I'll just uh, briefly wonder what your thoughts are on that. It is clearly uh, a case where they, there is a, a standoff as to who makes the decision. The decision, it seems, um, is awfully popular, but no one wants to own it. I wonder why that is. Um, the uh, BMJ, who have been quite good on this subject, um, in a July um, opinion piece said, COVID-19 vaccines for children, hypothetical benefits to adults do not outweigh the risks to children. So they were talking quite sensibly about the risks to children. The, and the risks all of a sudden have been minimised. All of a sudden, well, we're not really talking about the risks. We're, we're talking about the lack of benefits, but we're not talking about the risks. And the risks, of course, are severe. We're talking about... Um, uh, about heart defects, we're talking about circulatory defects, uh, and we're talking about children being potentially disabled and killed, albeit in small numbers. For what benefit? Um, and no one really wants to own that decision because it will come back, they are quite clear, uh, with some very um, sad looking uh, cases and some families whose lives will be blighted. Um, and what's the, what's the driving force here? Societal benefits, educational benefits. This is all new. We didn't used to make uh, medical decisions based on wider society benefits. We used to make medical decisions based on an individual medical assessment for the individual human being. Uh, that seems to have gone. Uh, yeah, well, I think probably one of the most... Uh... Worrying aspects of this uh, was highlighted in a Telegraph article, actually, while we were away on holiday. I think this is from the 26th of August or so. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight one paragraph out of this because it says, uh, NHS guidance shown to the Telegraph and the Planet Normal podcast. You can listen to that podcast uh, in the article below. Uh, and circulated to NHS Trust says that most 12 to 15-year-olds should be deemed Gillick competent to provide own consent over jabs. Now, for those who don't know what uh, Gillick competency is, this came out of a 1985 legal decision uh, which ruled that a teenage girl could obtain contraception without her parents' involvement. And as a result, uh, children over the age of 13 are generally considered, uh, at least by schools and so on, as having uh, Gillick competence to make decisions uh, over vaccination. Um, without informing their parents. And that seems to be uh, a, the case uh, for COVID jabs as well. Um, so, David, that's a pretty significant uh, decision for any 12 to 15-year-old to make. Uh, and bearing in mind there is supposed to be this uh, notion of informed consent. Uh, I wonder how informed a 12-year-old can be expected to be uh, on the issues here. Well, quite. I mean, heart inflammation, uh, the risk of long-term medical effects. Um, th th this is... Uh, th th not only are 12 to 15-year-olds not going to be particularly uh, well-situated for making these decisions, they're going to be swayed by peer pressure, they're going to be swayed by advertising, perhaps more than older people would be. Um, but also, who carries the can if it all goes wrong? It's the family, it's the parents. They'll end up caring for the damaged child. Um, so if, they, if the family and the parents are the ones who are going to have to bear the responsibility if the situation goes, goes badly, 
Um, I'm not very comfortable with uh, the schools who will have no responsibility for this whatsoever. Um, putting all the responsibility onto the ch child, um, and we are talking about children here as defined by all government uh, measures. We're talking about a child who can't enter into a legal contract, who can't marry, who can't make major life decisions, but this one's okay. Um, and if it all goes wrong, the parents will have to pick it up, uh, pick up the pieces, but um, they won't have any part in the decision that's been made. It all seems um, highly dubious. Yes, highly dubious. Well, let's put a bit more uh, meat on what's been happening. So I've got some quotes here from the vaccines minister, Mr. Zahawi. Uh, this is taken from The Guardian. A decision had not yet been taken on whether healthy children aged 12 to 15 year old should be vaccinated against COVID-19 following reports that a rollout could be, uh, begin in the coming days. And we should remind ourselves here that, of course, the children being absolutely being targeted are ones who are vulnerable by means of their medical condition, particularly when they've got immune problems. And yet they are the very children that are top of the list for vaccination. But let's follow through what he says. Uh, it says that parents of healthy 12 to 15 year olds would be asked for consent if coronavirus jabs were approved for their children, uh, expected to be pushed through by ministers this week. So we don't know, it's not gonna happen. It may happen, it may be pushed through this week. More of the confusion, but uh, talking about parents would be asked for consent. But children could override their parents' wishes if they're deemed to be competent to make that decision with all the information available. So, and who would deem that? Uh, well, this is the key thing. Uh, before we attempt to answer that question, Mike, let's just get into the pond a little bit more. Uh, what you essentially do, he said, is make sure that the clinicians discuss this with the parents, with the teenager, and if they're then deemed to be able to make a decision that is competent, then that decision will go in favour of what the teenager decides to do. So there's a brilliant soup of everything because out of that group of people, who's actually going to decide that the teenager is competent to do it? But here's the government putting the onus on the teenager, the one who is most vulnerable because they may be an intelligent teenager, but will they understand all the nuances and the dangers of vaccines? I'm sure the answer to that is no, but the teenager is going to decide what to do. So I really put in this, what he didn't say, uh, but what he's really saying is that the real objective of the government is to enforce experimental vaccines on children and at the same time to further undermine parental responsibilities and protections for their children, because the children are going to be given all the propaganda in school as to why they should have the vaccine. They're not going to be told of the risks. And then those children are going to be deemed competent to make the decision. David, I'm going to say this is very sinister and devious uh, policy and propaganda by the government. They know full well they're going to go for um, vaccination of the children, um, but they're not quite sure how to get around the parents at the moment who may not agree. So what you're going to do is give the child the impression that they've got sufficient uh, understanding of the world to accept a vaccine being sold for profit. 
We, we interviewed uh, a, a young mum right back at the start of this uh, crisis. Um, and she had um, sent uh, one child off to school to get vaccinated. There was a very severe reaction. And she gave the school clear instructions, no more vaccines for her children. And um, wasn't a COVID vaccine in those days, obviously, but uh, that was her instruction. And then her quite young child, it was young, younger than 12, I think, her daughter came back with a hole in her arm. And she'd gone and she'd got kind of swept along with the crowd and um, she had been deemed competent and she'd been vaccinated completely against her mother's express wishes, against the medical history for the family as well. These clinicians who are talking to the teenagers to see if the teenagers are competent, do these clinicians have the medical history of the teenager to discuss any particular issues with them? I suspect not. They're just really, they're going to be relying on what the teenager volunteers. Um, have they ever met a teenager? That's not going to go well. You're going to get inappropriate medical provision rolled out on, you know, on a frequent basis. Um, there doesn't seem to be the protection. There doesn't seem to be the consideration of the risks. I mean, we are talking about up to and including fatal. We're talking about, in rare cases, we're talking about death. Um, the the um, effect on the heart that, that these vaccines are having in rare cases um, has has been fatal on, on occasion. So we're not talking about risks which are trivial. It's not just a sore arm or anything like that. We're talking about serious risks. We've seen the, the girl in a wheelchair being interviewed in America by a, a senator. Um, she was part of the trial. Um, to test the efficacy. She volunteered for the trial to test the safety and efficacy of, of these vaccines on younger people. There are risks, um, and they are going to be hidden from the school children because, we'll come to this later, there is an enormous propaganda campaign in place to sell the vaccine. It's not there to inform people for an informed choice. It's there to coerce vaccination. To coerce vaccination, uh, David, and, and of course, the groundwork has been in place for weeks that this was going to happen. Children were going to be vaccinated. Let's have a look at this uh, NHS documentation here. Uh, document here, COVID-19 vaccination programme, vaccinating children and young people, frequently asked questions, version one. Uh, the date, I think, is significant because this document was obviously prepared well before the 13th of August. So there is no question that behind the scenes through the NHS, everybody knows that the government's objective is to vaccinate the children. Uh, a lot of information in this document. Uh, people can find it online and have a look at it. It talks about the primary uh, care network groupings. They'll be delivering the COVID-19 vaccination enhanced service as the main provider. Um, it mentions very quickly where practices opt out. They need to run searches to ensure all eligible 12 to 15 year olds on registered lists are offered timely vaccination through other providers. This was the first hint that I got in this document that they're actively searching out the children. They're looking to find and identify them so that they can have those vaccines ready. Hospital hubs should continue to proactively offer COVID-19 vaccination to eligible children and young people. 
as a priority for our inpatient and outpatient services. So how can the children and young people be a priority when we haven't yet made a decision? Uh, well, it's just the NHS um, getting in in advance on the act. GPs and hospital hubs should prioritise vaccinating this group so all eligible 12 to 15-year-olds are offered the opportunity to book an appointment by the 23rd of August. So this is totally preempting any decision uh, made by the government, but it ends there by saying that vaccination centres and community pharmacy-led vaccination sites cannot vaccinate eligible 12 to 15-year-olds. Now, what is that to do with? Is that an insurance issue, do you think, Mike? What is it that makes the vaccine centres unable to deal with children? I don't know the answer, but if anybody out there does know the answer, would be very interested to know. Uh, it goes on here, we're talking about prior to vaccination, appropriate consent must be obtained in all cases. For 12 to 15 year olds, this would be parental consent or the child's own consent where they've been assessed as competent consent to vaccination. That's your Gillick competency, Mike. But of course, it doesn't say who's going to assess the child. Uh, is that going to be a school teacher who says, well, in my opinion, the child's uh, competent. So what mum and dad says doesn't matter. <clears throat> and excuse me, and what it says here that while there's no lower age limit for Gillick competence to be applied, it would rarely be appropriate or safe for a child to consent to treatment without a parent's involvement. Therefore, parental involvement and consent must be sought prior to vaccinating. So now we've got this mis mis mismatch with uh, what the government is actually saying. Uh, what is clear is the intention is to get the needle into the arms of these children. Here's the GPs. I'm saying they're part of the state's spying web because it says that all GP practices are required to identify the eligible children on their registered list to ensure they have access to the COVID-19 vaccine before the start of the school year. It's not currently possible to nationally invite eligible children aged 12 to 15 to book an appointment. So they're at least admitting they can't ring up the households of those children and say, come in for your vaccine, because obviously the parents are going to intervene. But here's the meat of it. It says, yes, in addition to the £12.58 item of service fee, a further supplement of £10 can be claimed per vaccination dose to eligible children and young people. So they're buying off the GPs uh, with a sum of £10 per jab if you can get the needle into a child. Um, utterly disgraceful is the best description I can come out with. And at the end of this document, there's a a template letter which forms Annex A, and this is um, this is talking about uh, the importance of getting in amongst the immunosuppressed people and children who are the priority to be vaccinated. So again, the GPs here are being asked to check their lists so that they can identify where the households are with severely immunosuppressed people so they can be lined up for the vaccine. David. Just one final thing. The list, I mean, I'm looking here at nhsinform.scot, um, and they're talking about vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds. And they only talk about the ones they are vaccinating, not the, the generality. It doesn't mention that they've decided not to vaccinate or it's, there's no advantage to vaccinating. 
generally uh, 12 to 15 year olds. That's not that's not mentioned. It's only the positive case and where they are vaccinating that they list. But the list is a bit disturbing. It includes the following: children and young people with severe neural disabilities, Down syndrome, underlying conditions resulting in immunosuppression, and a diagnosis of learning or intellectual disability. I find that a troubling list, Brian. Yes, because all the most vulnerable children are being targeted, particularly ch children who already have issues where vaccine complications could simply destroy them further or indeed kill them. And of course, this is why scientists throughout the world are warning about the risks of these experimental vaccines to children. Um, now, just have a look at this video clip. Uh, we've got some um, US nurses speaking out about why they're not taking the vaccine. Uh, the clip's very short, but what's, what's really wonderful about it is the quiet, measured way with which these uh, nurses are putting over their views and their concerns about the vaccines. Have a listen to what these ladies say. I think just listening to people talk, how come nobody's asking the nurses why they don't want it? Yeah, I think so. mm -hmm. yeah. That, why don't that you should want be, it? That should be a <laughs> huge, huge red flag. That should be a huge flag. Why is nobody asking these questions? Because you have healthcare systems that have very minimal people vaccinated. They want to tell you that they're fully vaccinated. They are not. There is departments with 20% vaccinated. Hmm. ER departments are very low. Why? Why, people? We are seeing it and they're not listening. I think uh, the last 18 months for a lot of us has been a blur. I mean, what's normal anymore? Nothing. Um, to think that we were once hailed as heroes and people that other people looked up to because of what we were doing. Is, and to now suddenly we're being referred to as ignorant, uneducated, and that we're directly responsible for spreading this virus around is absolutely absurd. And what's happened in the last three months even has perpetuated that absurdity to just downright insanity. Um, I, I can't, it, it's disgusting that humanity has turned to this and all of this division amongst, um, you know, just good people and even coworkers. You know, we're, we're all experiencing bullying, coercion, name calling, um, segregation. It's just unacceptable. Hi, my name is Heather Cobble, and I'm a registered nurse here in San Diego. I actually resigned from my job yesterday as a registered nurse because of this state mandate to be vaccinated. I was no problem working in the healthcare system over the last 18 months without a vaccine, but now all of a sudden I'm a threat to public health? Tell me where this makes sense. All of you sitting up here with your masks on, you know that those masks don't do anything. As a healthcare provider, we are taught how to use PPE. We're taught universal precautions, and we know how to implement them when we're, when we're dealing with patients who have a viral infection. I don't understand how you guys don't see the bigger picture here. What you're doing is you're creating a healthcare crisis. So, uh, David, I, I found that a particularly uh, clear little selection of comments by these nurses. And it, let's, let's just recap on what they're talking about. They're saying that uh, many people have not received the vaccine. They don't want it, but nobody's talking about those individuals. And then they're essentially talking about the attack on them. They're being called ignorant and uneducated. 
uh, they're being blamed. You nurses are responsible for helping spread the, the uh, virus. They know that this is wrong, uh, but it's obviously very offensive to them. And I'm going to say it's fascinating that all of these procedures happening in America, which these ladies are talking about, but the same things are also happening in this country. So what we are seeing is a cross-border policy. This is a world policy which is being rolled out. And uh, then they're saying, well, effectively, it's terrible to see that people are resorting to bullying and segregation. And uh, they're saying it doesn't make sense to them. And that lady ends by saying, well, of course, this is a created situation. And I think that that final point, she does go on to say more in the full video, but that final point is the key one, that what we're witnessing is not accidental as a result of incompetence by the authorities. This is a deliberate, malicious political policy throughout the healthcare system, both in the USA and, and UK and, of course, other countries. Yes, I mean, this, this is um, why we're hearing um, uh, the nurses using words like absurd and insane, because they're coming from a point of view of competence. They're coming from a point of view of um, practical problem-solving, caregiving, you know, professionalism. And they're faced with a policy that makes, on, on those levels, or against that benchmark, makes no sense whatsoever. And the, the lady who spoke last, I think she was also talking not only about the crisis that's, that's here now being manufactured, but also about the decision to target nurses, doctors, who will not take the vaccine um, for dismissal as creating the next healthcare crisis, because the crisis is going to be in staffing. And we're going to see that in the UK as well. Well, I think we're already uh, starting to see that in the care sector, uh, David. So, uh, so it's definitely on the cards for the UK. But let's uh, move to Israel, David, because, uh, of course, Israel leading the way in terms of vaccination at this point. But they seem to be needing to go for a fourth vaccine dose for some reason. Why would that be? Well, this is the question, right? The Israel has been uh, the poster child. Israel has been the guinea pig. Um, our, our friend Gilad Atzman has been um, suffering some degree of uh, being banned from social media for using that phrase. Um, they've been leading the way, and um, it's it's not working. And this is this is one of the issues that's not been addressed by any of the political talking heads. The policy, if you take it on its face value of what it's meant to do and what it's meant to achieve, is manifestly not working. So here we've got uh, someone that they call, uh, Times of Israel and Israeli media call, the virus czar, um, uh, Mr. Zarka, Professor Zarka. Um, and he's talking about not only is the current um, booster shot going to be run out, uh, it's, it's, it's been boosted. The booster shot in Israel has already um, been delivered. Uh, so that's the third shot. Uh, but he's already preparing the way for the fourth. And he says, quote, this is our life from now on in waves. Um, and he also went on to say, given the virus is here and will continue to be here, we also need to prepare for the fourth injection. Um, 
so this is very strange because we've got here Israel, right, which is which began its 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 vaccination program essentially ahead of everyone, went more rapidly and more thoroughly than everyone else and any other European country for sure. Um, we've got two and a half million Israelis from a population of what six and a half seven million have already received the third dose. So it's a hugely vaccinated country. But the positive test rate on Thursday was 8.43%, the highest it's been. And um, uh, the, the quotes we're getting are, are like this. It seems if we learn the lessons from the fourth wave, we must consider the possibility of subsequent waves and new variants. And thinking about this um, and the waning of the vaccines and the antibodies, it seems every few months, it could be once a year or every five or six months, we need another shot. So... They're recognising in the mainstream media in Israel the waning of the vaccines. There's a problem here. It's not, it's not delivering what was promised. Um, and this was picked up by uh, the Daily Mail, who did some did some interesting graphical work to show just what the situation is. So here we see Israel, the, the top bar here in in brown, um, with by far the highest. Um, confirmed COVID rates per million people of all these countries uh, compared, and yet they are the most vaccinated. Why is that true? And when you look at this graph of they're talking about the fourth wave, so if you go back to April, you see how relatively small the first wave was, and we all panicked all around the world. Um, you see that as the Vaccine, there was a second wave in September, and then as the vaccine was rolled out, there was a massive third wave, bigger than ever before. And now, as we roll out the booster shot, lo and behold, we've got a fourth wave that's higher than anything we've so far seen. Um, just on the surface of it, that's a strange-looking graph. Um, that that looks like something's wrong. Uh, that the the the, the um, Healthcare response, the government level healthcare response is not working. And nobody is talking about this in the mainstream. Nobody's talking about this in our parliaments. Uh, it's only um, mavericks and, and, and brave individual scientists, and we'll come to some of those shortly, who are speaking out about what the figures are actually showing and what questions that. Uh, that based on those figures demand answers. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you know, it's not in the press, uh, at least the effects in Israel, but uh, certainly nations are starting to notice. Well, yes, Portugal and Sweden have both banned entry from Israelis. So again, this is a strange thing. The most vaccinated country in the world, uh, the nationals are now not allowed to leave. Uh, epidemiologist um, uh, Davidovich a professor at Ben Gurion University said that Israel's a strange case. Quote, we have some of the highest rates for both infections and vaccinations. Right? So he's recognising the strangeness of the fact. He's not suggesting um, in this article what the solution is or what the explanation is, but he's at least recognising it. Uh, why aren't we recognising that here? Uh, why aren't we hearing this from the Joint uh, Council on Vaccination in, in the UK? Why aren't we hearing this discussed by our chief medical officers and our politicians? Why the silence? 
uh, indeed. But uh, sorry, did you have something? Well, the, the silence says it all, David. The silence is the fact that they're hiding something. They don't want the truth to come out about what's happening with the vaccine, the adverse effects that are being uh, recorded and the deaths and the increase in infections, which seems to have come about with an increase in vaccination. The silence is the evidence that the government and their agencies are lying to the nation states. Now, this, this next little bit of video um, is, is just a remarkable piece of propaganda. It's aimed at the, at the Orthodox Jewish population in New York State. Uh, the Orthodox Jewish population is hugely led in the decision-making in daily life by what the rabbis say. That's the culture. So knowing this, uh, the pro-vaccine lobby have, I suspect, purchased, but certainly acquired the support of a great many rabbis and made the following video. I, I think this is quite a striking piece of propaganda because it's so honed and tailored for one particular audience. And knowing that audience as I do, it will be very effective. And it does have horrible um, uh, reflections of other times where the leadership of this same community have actually led them into, um, into destruction. Um, and it, it just gave me a very bad feeling about the whole um, site of the state buying religious leaders to coerce a population. This has been done before in America um, uh, with um, uh, the, the war against the weak um, uh, and, and the eugenics program. It's been done in Europe, again, with the Jewish community. Um, I don't think this is good, but it was certainly extremely hard-hitting, and it's worth watching. My dear and beloved Hevra, the Rebona Shalom has given us a gift, a very precious gift. It's called the COVID-19 vaccines. Vaccines have allowed us to reopen. And to enjoy Simcha safely again. With all of the data, we clearly see just how safe and effective these vaccines are for all populations. Including the elderly, those with underlying health conditions, and pregnant and nursing women. Due to so many people being vaccinated, the number of hospitalizations and deaths decreased greatly since the vaccines were released. But the numbers of COVID-19 cases are spiking again. And in New York, almost all deaths due to COVID-19 are in unvaccinated individuals. Unvaccinated people die. Die. They die. We haven't lived through enough. We should live in New York. It's not a girl, but she's a dog. For we in the community have to realize that if 99% of doctors say, take the shot, we take the shot. What's the shy over here? Are we playing games? The terrorist says, When it pertains to matters of health, you have to follow the doctors. So let's all feel comfortable yet again, davening in shul, going back to yeshivas, please take a chrayis for your neighbor's health as well as your own. Rav is in the plural. When we take the vaccine, we're helping everybody. And that's a double mitzvah. There is, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation circulating. But it's important to know the truth. After over a year of research, clinical trials, and the actual vaccines in use, we see no evidence of any kind in negative outcomes for fertility and no evidence of increased risk to women of childbearing age. We are a cohesive community. And the very best way to ensure our health and safety is with one united, harmonious voice. One voice. One voice. One voice. The Dolly Yisrael have urged us all to take the vaccine, 
We need to follow in their footsteps. Cases are spiking in every state. Let's not add the five towns in New York City, Khalila, to that list. We want to celebrate the Yom Tovim responsibly. Get vaccinated now. Get vaccinated now. Get vaccinated now. Right now. Why are you still waiting? Please get vaccinated today. Let's do it as soon as we can. Get vaccinated now. Please get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Get it done. That's what the doctors are about and want us to do. Let's go. Be smart. Be responsible. Get vaccinated. Now, the, the conflicts in that video were quite striking. The data, we've looked at the data. You need to look at the data, but don't look at the data. Just do what the doctors say in the same video. You have rabbis giving health advice to people with underlying conditions. What? You have got the conflict between vaccines have been a huge success, but cases are spiking and it's a huge crisis at the same time. And statements like there's no evidence of any kind of risk of risk to women of childbearing age. That's a lie. Right? We can be even even the BBC in their own staff can point to fatalities in women of childbearing age. So that's a lie. So here you have the leaders of this religious community lying to the people to get them vaccinated. That that shows you the power that the state is having over the authority figures that would normally be an alternative source of leadership. They're completely owned. It's a very disturbing piece of video. Um, it smacks of desperation, I think, uh, David. But I think we'd also have to say that uh, if they're not telling the truth, uh, we need to know the reason behind it. Are they deceived themselves? So there could be a variety of reasons why they might want, not want to tell the truth, but certainly they're not uh, looking at the evidence in order to give people the full picture about the risks and the benefits of the vaccine. Uh, David, we're well behind time, so if we could just uh, very briefly talk about the face mask song. Uh, yes, this is um, uh, being um, run out in our schools. It's to the tune of I've been working on the railroad and the they get the children to sing, I will always wear my face mask all day long at school. And it also contains several lies and is quite creepy and Orwellian. Um, so when we talk about uh, Gillick competence in a few years, remember that's the background um, of the education system that will generate the required answer. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, I just wanted to add that, of course, we, we've had um, uh, an expert opinion given on, on uh, vaccines within Israel and in other countries across the world by Dr. Harvey Seligman. So that's still available on the UK Column website. And there's going to be a further update in the next few days um, from uh, Dr. Harvey Seligman. And this will be looking in in detail at the data about vaccine safety and risks. OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and that would be very much appreciated. Also share our material on the various platforms as you find it. OK, well, I couldn't resist this one. We had an email over the last couple of days uh, that uh, somebody had received this uh, from the NHS. It says, NHS, we've recently checked and we can see you're eligible for a pass proving you have been vaccinated. You can apply for this here. 
Uh, the only problem was that this message was sent to a completely unvaccinated person. So it's clear there's a few problems inside the NHS uh, vaccine system. Uh, we'll be coming on to COVID passes in just uh, one minute. But just before we did that, I just wanted to mention the, uh, the protests have been going on in France over the weekend. Uh, huge numbers of people uh, coming out. So here's one tweet with a suitable photograph there. Um, and uh, well, we've got huge amounts of uh, people walking in various parts of the country. Now, uh, of course, in France already, um, they have the situation where people are not allowed uh, to go unvaccinated into uh, shopping malls of a particular size. Uh, so a decision was made by some of the protesters to invade uh, one of these malls. Uh, and in fact, the police ended up having to back off uh, in one particular case, as you can see here, not in every case, as we'll see in a second, because the police brutality, um, absolutely uh, stark in France. Uh, over the weekend, um, so uh, they were being pushed up the uh, up the escalator there. But they decided that they wanted to to single out some individuals, uh, particularly if they were women, it seems. Um, and this uh, gets quite brutal in a second. Uh, but David, uh, clearly the, uh, the the French population not happy with the uh, the situation with COVID passes in France, and they're uh, making their presence uh, uh, felt uh, to the establishment. Yes, indeed. And we're going to see this more and more. Uh, eventually, I suppose, the Anglo-Saxon countries will start to wake up and realise our ancient freedoms have been removed from us. Um, and uh, although we can rely on the BBC not to report that when it happens, um, we are seeing um, protests in Melbourne. We're seeing protests in Australia. We're seeing some protests in the States. We've seen huge and very peaceful and very joyful protests in London. Um, and uh, the ideas, the battle of ideas, the battle for people's minds um, goes on, I think is, is gradually and steadily being won by, this, by the side who, who, is, who are pointing to the irrationality um, and the loss of liberty and the loss of in, 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 in humanity that, in, that it's involved in the international COVID policy. Yes. Now, uh, Big Brother Watch, and no matter what you might think of Big Brother Watch, I think this is a useful campaign. They've been running this for a little while now. Uh, Stop COVID passes. Um, and uh, they're asking for people to join the challenge. Now, what are they, what are they saying here? Well, first of all, MPs, uh, they say, have launched a cross-party campaign. Uh, they're saying to date, 10 rights groups, 16 peers, 82 MPs, 44 Tories, 25 Labour, 11 Lib Dems, 1 Green, 1 Independent have joined the cross-party campaign to oppose COVID status certificates. MPs and peers from Labour, Liberal Democrats and Conservatives have signed the pledge. We oppose the divisive and discriminatory use of COVID status certifications uh, to deny individuals access to general services, businesses or jobs. Um, and they provide the full list there uh, if you want to go and see um, if your MPs on that list and maybe you'd like to contact them and offer them support. And I just want to very briefly run through the, the nine reasons that Big Brother Watch uh, believe COVID passes uh, must be stopped. Um, and uh, so they're unnecessary, they say. There is no conclusive evidence yet as to how the vaccines affect transmissibility of the virus. They're discriminatory. Uh, they're counterproductive uh, because uh, the research from across Europe shows that compelling people to take vaccines does not necessarily result in higher uptake of vaccines. In fact, coercing people to have the vaccines can be counterproductive uh, if it lowers trust and raises suspicions. Uh, they're concerned about the checkpoint society. 
and the fact that the UK has a proud history of opposition to ID cards. We're not a papers carrying country, but COVID passes could turn into a two tier checkpoint society uh, and so on. Surveillance state they're concerned about. They're also concerned about the mission creep, the fact that COVID passes would inevitably expand to be used for other purposes. And uh, we would argue that, in fact, that's the intention. Uh, the, the suggestion that it's irreversible, though, I'm just going to say, well, of course, nothing's irreversible, actually. But that doesn't mean that you should let it get, uh, get uh, passed in the first place. Uh, divisive, uh, it's feasible that COVID passes could be used to put controls on people who received less effective vaccines or who required boosters, is one example. Uh, and uh, autonomy, we believe individuals have the right to make their own choices about their own bodies. And I think this is a very key point as well. So Big Brother Watch running this campaign. They've done very, very well on their crowdfunder for it. They're uh, well past their first target and currently have raised 153,000, or at least that was this morning, 153,815 pounds so far. Um, so uh, so that was uh, that's quite well done. It is, and we've got to support anything that is heading in the right direction, even though it might not be 100% perfect, is worth supporting. Many people upset with the video clip showing the French police um, beating the women with truncheons. So people saying this is absolutely terrible, but we can't do anything. Well, of course, you can do something. Um, try sending that film clip to the uh, French embassy, um, asking what they're doing about it. Talk to your MP about it. There's many things that can be done. Now, David, at the weekend, uh, Andrew Marr on the BBC had uh, Nick Carter, General Sir Nick Carter, the uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, on his programme on the BBC. Um, and, uh, well, he seems to be saying that the Taliban wants an inclusive uh, Afghanistan. Are you buying that? But yeah, this, this particular speech was from about a month ago. Um, I, and I put it up here to, partly to contrast with where he is now. Um, Press TV here reporting... Um, uh, the, the General Sadiq Carter, who describes not only the, the Taliban want an inclusive Afghanistan, if you can believe such a thing, but, quote, they are bound together by a common purpose, which is they don't like corrupt governance. They don't like governance that is self-serving. So it sounds like, according to General Sadiq Carter, the Taliban all watch the UK column and then are sort of people. I don't believe him. Um, but we've got, just to just to let you let the audience glory in the in the buffoonery uh, that he was putting on display here um, back in August, and we have a little video clip of this interview. And yes, of course, you know we are having to collaborate with them. Um, they now provide uh, the security on the ground in Kabul. Uh, and we are going to work with them in order to be able to conduct the evacuation that is now underway. And how do you feel about collaborating? with the enemy when um, they have carried out such atrocities against um, UK military personnel over the years? I think you have to be very careful using the word enemy. Um, I think people need to understand who the Taliban actually are. And of course what they are, a disparate collection of tribespeople. As President Karzai put it to me only yesterday, they're country boys. Uh, and the plain fact is that they happen to live by a code of honour and a standard, which has been their standard for many, many years. It's called Pashtun Wali. It has honour at the heart of what they do. They are bound together by a common purpose, which is they don't like corrupt governance. They don't like governance that is self-serving. And they want an Afghanistan that is inclusive for all. 
So I think rather than talking Except about... Except women. The, what? Except women. Um, well, again, I think we have to wait and see. I mean, I don't know what they mean. We can't support the, the way that they treat women. We, we, surely. Well, I think you have to listen to what they're saying at the moment, and I think you have to listen to the facts on the ground. I'm saying they that are have definitely, to abide they by are Sharia definitely, law. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's anything that you and I would approve of particularly. I'm just but clarifying I do, that. I, absolutely, but I do think that they have changed. I think they recognise that over the course of the last 20 years, Afghanistan has evolved. They recognise the fundamental role that women have played in that evolution. And yes, they, at the moment, will undoubtedly say that they want to respect women's rights under Islamic law, and that will be a Sharia law. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't allow them to be involved in government and in education and in medicine and those things that they need them to be involved in. Uh, now, for comment on that, a uh, remarkable piece of video. Uh, we have an interview with uh, an interview clip with some Taliban members. Just see how they respond to a similar um, exploration of the issues. So, would you believe in the democratic vote, though? So, would people be allowed to vote in women politicians? <laughs> So th this shows you how how far out of touch Sunit Carter is. It, I, I wonder, does he actually understand the people he's dealing with at all? Does he understand their philosophy? Does he understand how they view the world? Does he understand what Sharia law means? Does he understand how Islam views women? Does he understand any of it? Because he, he doesn't seem to. Uh, David, I, I don't think he does understand any of it, but just take one point. Uh, British servicemen killed in Afghanistan, and apparently, according to this man, he's no idea who the enemy is. He says he's, he's unsure, and then he is so naive as to describe them as country boys. Well, it appears to me from the reports we've seen on Afghanistan that actually the Taliban, uh, we may not like them, but they've been ex extremely astute and very clever in a lot of the things that they've done. But here is this man saying he doesn't really understand what it's about. Uh, so presumably he didn't really understand uh, when the Taliban was starting to take over cities from the inside. This is, I mean, this man, <laughs> I, I, I'm lost for words, well, lost we, for words. We have another clip here, and this is from the Andrew Marshall on Sunday. Well, well, this maybe gives us a bit more background to it. Let's have a look at this one. As was said earlier in your programme, even the Taliban didn't expect uh, things to change as quickly as they did. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk about a failure of intelligence and all of that. I mean, the plain fact is, and I said to you on that programme when you interviewed me on June the 11th, uh, July the 11th, that there are a number of scenarios that could play out, uh, and one of them certainly would be would be a collapse and state fracture. It was the pace of it that surprised us, and I don't think we realised quite what the Taliban were up to. They weren't really fighting for the cities they eventually captured, they were negotiating for them. And I think you'll find a lot of money changed hands as they managed to buy off those who might have fought for them. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, said the military intelligence was clearly wrong. Was he wrong? Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that in, it's not purely about military intelligence. The way it works in this country is we have the Joint Intelligence Committee, which sits inside the Cabinet Office. And what they do is to pull together the sources from uh, the Ministry of Defence and, of course, from the Foreign Office, the interagencies um, and the Secret Intelligence Services, and, of course, wider open source material. 
So it's really a much broader thing than just strictly military intelligence. I think what surprises people from the outside is that this was such a comprehensive failure of intelligence. We spend a lot of money in this country on different kinds of intelligence gathering, and yet we couldn't see what was plainly happening, which was that the Taliban were taking the entire country over very fast indeed. Yeah, but it's not just about the Taliban, of course. You know, this was a, there were two sides to this conflict. And what I don't think anybody predicted was um, how fragile that Afghan government was and how fragile it was in relation to the command of its armed forces. And I've often said armed forces uh, fight on the basis of the components of fighting power, which are the conceptual, the physical and the moral. And what was extremely difficult for anybody to know was how vulnerable that moral component was. And that ultimately was what determined what happened here. I think the thing that uh, fascinated me most about that little clip, uh, Brian, was uh, his unwillingness to accept the criticism of military intelligence, right? So first of all, he says, well, it wasn't a military intelligence decision because in this country, we don't do military intelligence. We have the uh, the cabinet office, it's a cabinet office decision. We've got the Joint Intelligence Committee and that's cited within the, the cabinet office. And actually there was information coming from even open source uh, areas as well, which helped inform the decision. So he was implying very strongly there that that was actually a political decision. You know, it wasn't a military intelligence failure; it was a political failure. And but then when it, when Andrew Marr pushed back on that, I don't know whether you noticed the big sigh. Um, so he was he was clearly um, not so enthusiastic about the the approach uh, the, or the question over a failure of military intelligence. But my question then is. How many more failures of intelligence do we have to put up with? Well, since we've got large numbers of the army within 77 Brigade uh, spying on the British public, perhaps 77 Brigade ought to be retargeted or should have been retargeted to be spying in Afghanistan to find out what the Taliban were up to. But this is a question of priorities. This is the man running the army uh, whose priority has been um, um, intersectionality and uh, the new agenda. Uh, that's where we can see across all of the talk, uh, the social media around uh, the army, this is where the focus has been. But for him to say that, that basically is military intelligence, where you've got troops on the ground, the whole point of that is you're going to be sucking up all of the information and intelligence as to what's happening around you. Is he really saying that the British army now is incapable of picking up real intelligence on the ground as to what the Taliban were doing. The first interview, he said, uh, well, we didn't really know what was going on. And then he says that the Taliban were, were surprised at the speed of their own success. Well, how would he know that the Taliban were surprised at the speed of their own success? I think this man has been spending too much time in political circles and too little time learning to be how a, a military officer, uh, because if he knew his stuff, this situation could not possibly have happened. But maybe I'm being a bit hard on him. I don't, well, David. I, I don't think so. I, and I think it's actually worse than that, because it's not, his problem wasn't that he didn't know what the Taliban were doing. He didn't know what his own allies were doing. After 20 years setting up the government, in those two interviews, he basically admitted that the government that would set up was corrupt um, and that uh, the army that he'd been instrumental in setting up um, was devoid of any moral fibre and suffered a huge moral collapse. Should he not have known that? I mean, is, is that not 
I mean, he, he knows that there's three bases for building the ability to to, to fight, and and one was one was entirely missing, and he didn't know. Um, I really think uh, he ought to have known. Um, and finally, Brian, you're a naval man. You might be able to answer this. Why does he have a list? He's he's <laughs> standing at a very funny angle. He's maybe been holed at one side. I, I looked at that myself. I think, he, I think he's taking on water. Yeah. He's definitely taking on water. And I think I think he's deeply uncomfortable with the interview because for uh, for the British and American governments to try and say to the population they did not know what was going to happen, I, I think is just completely untenable. He knows it. And therefore, when he's questioned, he becomes unstable and starts to list to starboard, I think it was. We'll leave it there. Yes, now, uh, let's go to the mail here. And the headline is, BBC admits Syria gas attack report had serious flaws in victory for truth after complaint by Peter Hitchens. So this was uh, uh, following their radio series. We'll come on to that in one second. Uh, but the article says the BBC has admitted that a Radio 4 documentary on the alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria uh, in Douma uh, contains serious inaccuracies. The corporation's executive complaints unit upheld a protest from Mail on Sunday, Commons Peter Hitchens, following last November's broadcast of Mayday, uh, the canister on the bed. Uh, now, of course, uh, as I say, that was only one of a number of uh, ish, uh, episodes of Mayday. We'll come on to that in one second. The judicators agreed that the programme by the BBC invests investigative journalist Chloe Hajimathu uh, failed to meet the corporation's editorial standards for accuracy by reporting false claims. Uh, the programme, part of a series, uh, dealt with the attack in Douma in 2018 um, and uh, the role later played by Alex, uh, in inverted commas, a former inspector with the OPCW, the Organisation for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Uh, last week, nearly 10 months after the broadcast, the ECU delivered its findings that the BBC was wrong to insinuate that Alex was motivated to go public about his doubts over the attack uh, by the prospect of a $100,000 reward from WikiLeaks. Um, so they were getting uh, their oar into everyone here. Uh, they were trying to undermine the uh, OPCW whistleblower, uh, also trying to undermine WikiLeaks. Uh, the BBC also accepted it had no evidence to back, its, uh, back up its claim that Alex, a highly qualified and apolitical scientist, believed the attack in Douma, which prompted retaliatory missile uh, strikes by Britain, the US and France, had been staged. In its ruling, the corporation withdrew from imputation that Mr Hitchens, uh, who has reported on despotic regimes for more than 40 years, uh, shared the Russian and Syrian state views on the war. Upholding the complaint, the adjudicator said the ECU found that although they were limited to one aspect of investigation into a complex and hotly contested subject, uh, these points represented a failure to meet the standards of accuracy appropriate to a program of this kind. So the BBC uh, pumping out fake news, as I think we said about that series uh, at the time. But of course, uh, everybody, you would expect that the BBC would uh, publish uh, the outcome of this ECU uh, finding. Um, so let's have a look at the BBC's complaints page. Uh, here you are, contact the BBC, you go to the complaints tab and uh, recent complaints and responses. Well, there are four listed there. There's one for BBC Radio London 2021. Uh, that's, from the, that's from September. The BBC Newsline, BBC Northern Ireland uh, on the 11th of August. Uh, Sickness and Lies, BBC News from the 5th of August. And the Tokyo Olympics coverage 2021. Okay, it's not there. So let's uh, click on see all and see what we get. And uh, well, it's not there either. This is a bit unfortunate. 
Uh, so the BBC clearly doesn't want people to find this particular uh, complaint response. Uh, it does exist, however, so here it is, Mayday, the canister on the bed. So if you search for uh, Mayday colon the canister on the bed on your favorite search engine, you may well find this, but it's not linked from, uh, from uh, the, contact, uh, the uh, complaints page, it seems. Uh, and so they do have it, but it's just not findable. Excellent. Now let's just remind ourselves about Mayday for a second, because of course, one of the other people that Mayday uh, had a go at was uh, Vanessa Bealey. This was episode four. Uh, and this one was called Hoax Producers. Uh, and this uh, is the lovely Chloe Hajimathu, uh, who's uh, clearly pumping out fake news on at least the uh, episode that Peter Hitchens was complaining about. Uh, and she had uh, contacted Vanessa, if you remember, uh, accusing her of uh, calling for humanitarian workers to be bombed, uh, that uh, she may be liable to face charges of aiding and abetting, inciting or conspiring to commit a crime under international law. That would appear to, to apply to uh, Vanessa Bailey, she claimed. Uh, and she claimed that Vanessa Bailey is a pro-Assad uh, anti-establishment activist who allows herself to be used as a tool by uh, and promote the propaganda of the Syrian government. Uh, and that the Syrian government has provided her with visas and state escorts suggesting and suggested places that she could visit. Uh, and uh, uh, and she, they also accused her, Chloe accused Vanessa of not having contacted the White Helmets, uh, Mayday Rescue or James the Missouri when she was attempting, when she was covering the, uh, the, the those particular issues, which of course was another lie. So uh, right the way through this series, it seems, uh, there are errors at the very least, and the accusation of fake news could very well be limited, or very well be uh, applied. Um, and I just want to remind everybody of an article that uh, Vanessa published around the same time, uh, asking, did the BBC use a Nural Dinzinki supporter as a researcher for the May Day series? And uh, we believe that they did do exactly that. Um, so... Uh, I, I'm, I just find it really struggling to understand why they wouldn't want to make sure that the public... Uh, well, you're not really struggling, Mike, no, no, are you? Not really. You're not really struggling because we know that the BBC is now pumping out propaganda, misinformation, and then lying over the fact that they're doing it when they're caught out. They certainly don't want that advertised. I tried to go a little bit deeper to see how this um, uh, executive complaints unit was run and I really couldn't find out very much, but I did find a job advert. So this is part of it. Um, so we know now that the executive complaints unit is seven strong and it comprises a head of the ECU, a deputy head, three senior complaints advisors, a senior policy advisor and a team assistant. And the team reports to the director of Ed editorial policy and standards. I couldn't find names, so if any of our viewers can help identify who these individuals are, we would like to know. Uh, the job description went on for the senior complaints advisor to contribute to maintaining the BBC's editorial and ethical standards by investigating complaints escalated to stage two of the BBC complaints procedure and complaints, complaints notified to the BBC by Ofcom. And then it talks about the necessary competencies, behaviours and characteristics. Uh, so you've got to be good at managing relationships and team working, able to build and maintain effective working relationships with a range of people working cooperatively. Editorial judgment, demonstrate balanced and objective judgment, the very thing the BBC is lacking. You've got to have that. And you've got to have an, 
excuse me, a thorough understanding of BBC editorial guidelines, target audience, program and departmental objectives. So this is a very busy job. Uh, goes on uh, with some of the skills, training and experience. Uh, so we've got everything from that editorial judgment, again, through to analytical insight, creativity and uh, problem solving. You've got to be good at solving any of the BBC's problems. Uh, but this one really did catch my eye. Creative problem solving skills with strong political, in inverted commas, instincts and judgment. And to me, that meant you've got to know what the BBC expected you to do to uh, calm things and protect their reputation. But again, perhaps I'm being a bit cynical mm. again today. Uh, okay, let's uh, have a look at uh, whether we should trust the media. And this is Axios, uh, who measure these sorts of things. This is based in the United States, but uh, uh, their headline is uh, Media Trust Hits New Low. Uh, so what are they saying? Trust in traditional media has declined to an all-time low, and many news professionals are determined to do something about it. And now they go on to say that uh, trust in social media has also declined to new lows as well. But nonetheless, we're, we're interested in traditional media here for the second because they're determined to, just, to do something to fix this trust issue with, media, uh, with traditional media. So let's see what they want to do. Uh, this is why it matters first. Faith in society's central institutions, especially in government and the media, is the glue that holds society together. So faith in the government and faith in the media is the glue that holds societies together. That should make us all feel very good. That glue was visibly dissolving a decade ago and has now, for many uh, millions of Americans, disappeared entirely. Uh, by the numbers, for the first time ever, fewer than half of all Americans have trust in traditional media, according to data from Edelman's annual trust barometer shared exclusively with Axios. Uh, the big picture, these numbers are echoed across the rest of the world. Uh, they're mostly not a function of Donald Trump's war on fake news. So it's got nothing to do with Trump. I'm surprised about that, but there you go, uh, because usually he's getting blamed for everything. But nonetheless, uh, how it works. So this is what they're going to do about it. Media outlets can continue to report reliable facts, but that won't turn the trend around on its own. What is needed is for trusted institutions, that's the government, to visibly embrace the news media. And, you know, I've seen this described as Orwellian, um, but I think this is really a spectacular position for them to take. Um, and before I ask uh, David for a brief comment, uh, I just want to remind everybody, of course, we're already seeing this type of uh, situation arise. This organization, the Trust Project, uh, was established in, I think, October 2017. Uh, we help over half a billion people easily access the integrity of news worldwide. We're growing fast. And this is all about creating trust metrics for various news sources so that you know whether you can trust those news sources uh, or not. Uh, so, uh, David, just before we move on to a great example of why uh, or a great example of why we might not want to trust the mainstream press. Um, just what are your thoughts on, on this, this notion of how we solve this problem of trust in the mainstream media? Well, when you, when you first said that we're going to do something about it, like the cynic in me said, make it worse. But actually, yes. I, visibly, get the government to visibly embrace the news media to, to improve trust. Right? That, that shows you how unhinged they are, how far they are from reality, how far they are from having any understanding about why they're not trusted, why they're heading towards being hated, and why they, they don't matter nearly as much anymore. 
and they don't know what's going on and they certainly can't fix it. I, I did find the whole discussion about a faith-based government uh, quite funny. Um, but yeah, they're going to do something about it. They're going to make it really obvious that they're, they're actually running a ministry of truth straight out of 1984, mini-true, um, and that will fix things apparently. It will indeed. So let's, uh, if, if the Duma story wasn't enough, let's look at another one. This is Rolling Stone magazine. Gunshot victims left waiting as horse, uh, as horse dewormer overdoses overwhelm Oklahoma hospitals, doctor says. Um, so what was this all about? Uh, well, well, I'm not going to read out this particular uh, tweet, um, but uh, basically they're saying that the story from the from Rolling Stone was nonsense. Now, the Rolling Stone might not seem like a terribly credible source, but the fact is that this story was picked up uh, news media right across the world, including the Netherlands, other countries. Um, and really, and what it was about was a claim uh, that uh, Oklahoma's hospitals were overrun by patients who had been overdosing on ivermectin. Uh, and this was meant that people with gunshot wounds couldn't be treated. Um, but unfortunately, it was a completely false claim. Unfortunately, Rolling Stone didn't bother to check whether it was a true or false claim. And then the other mainstream media channels decided to pick it up and they didn't check whether it was a true or false claim either. So the hospital's trust or equivalent, is, they call themselves NHS Sequoia, uh, they had to make, uh, they made a, a, a message here. Uh, although Dr. Jason uh, Macalia, uh, who was the source for this article, is not an employee of NHS Sequoia, he is affiliated with a medical staffing group that provides coverage for our emergency room. With that said, uh, he has not worked uh, at, at various locations over the last two months. Uh, they have not treated any patients due to complications related to ivermectin. This includes not treating any patients for ivermectin overdose. All patients who have visited our emergency room, they say, have received medical attention as appropriate. Our hospital has not had to turn away any patients seeking emergency care. So uh, a five-minute check with the uh, hospitals concerned would have uh, made sure that that was sorted out. So what did Rolling Stone magazine do about it? Well, they published uh, uh, apparently an update. I'm not quite sure where this update is because actually it's not on the article itself. And although they changed the headline of the article, which now says one hospital denies, one hospital denies Oklahoma doctor's story over ivermectin overdoses, uh, and when you look at the update on this page, it says one hospital has, desired, uh, has denied that doctor's claim that ivermectin overdoses are causing emergency room backlogs. And so it's all very unclear. And you've got to say, David, how do we trust news organizations that don't make proper corrections on the articles? They change headlines with maintaining the URL the same. They change the headline. They make updates, but the updates aren't clear even though there's a full response from the hospitals. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I mean, they make an update, but the update is our entire story was garbage. It was based on nothing. None of it's true. Everything we told you was a lie. That's the honest update. But that's not what you get. You get this weasel words and they leave the, the, the core of the article up there to mislead people further. It's, uh, it's very striking. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you for that, David. Right, with an eye on the clock, we just move on to this uh, and to end on this one. I'm afraid we're back on the BBC. Um, 
almost 50 shops a day disappear from high streets. Uh, where's, where's this information come from? Well, it's actually come from PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, lo local, local data company, it says source, PWC, local data company. Um, so it's not looking good here. A lot of closures, um, a lot more closures than openings along what they call standalone units, shopping centres, retail parks, high streets. And uh, then we got onto this growing and declining types of chain stores. Well, the, the blue, which is the good news of growing, doesn't look too good uh, anyway because it's so small. But beneath it is a huge red sector of of the bad news of shops and uh, uh, restaurants and financial services that are disappearing. Uh, but what caught my eye was this, that in the middle of the chain stores, we've got job centres. Um, well, there, that's a growth industry. Job centres are a growth industry. Well, um, apparently, but um, shop, a shop, a job centre, it's a shop really. It happens to be run by the government. And, I don't uh, know. Well, is it though? Is this, it? Is, this is the question. Maybe it's an uh, arm's length agency. Yeah, well, it is an arm's length agency, but high arm's length. Perhaps it's a commercial organisation. Well, well, maybe the truth is here. So we'll leave people to have a think about that. But as, of course, we've been told repeatedly, uh, by the government and the Bank of England that everything in the economy is looking rosy, uh, but this little Christmas tree that we've had on screen doesn't seem to be too healthy. We'll leave it there. David, thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to say a big thank you to all the people uh, viewing today. Thank you. For those people getting upset at the video of the French police in action, this is the reality of police forces at the moment. Uh, UK is also suffering from this brutality. And of course, what is the best method of dealing with it? It is to make it visible, to expose it and to comment on it. So don't run away from it, share it, talk to people, uh, bring your MP to account uh, where this inappropriate uh, action by the police occurs. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra on the main live stream on the UK column live stream and otherwise see you 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. Indeed. Okay, we'll say bye-bye. Bye-bye.